you could look at art movements. What you'll see is that there's very often a group of people that are in physical proximity and they hang out and they create a manifesto for an art genre and then push each other very quickly to discover kind of like in this fractal way what this genre is about. The whole field of opportunities open. And because they're together, they can iterate really, really quick in a new environment. And I think when you look at the crypto ecosystem, it's like that, but on steroids, because it's not a cafe of five to 10 people. It's software developers in a global environment riffing on each other's code. Welcome to Opinionated with Ben Schiller. Ben is the features editor at Coindesk. He's a seasoned business journalist, and he'll be talking with some of the most fascinating contributors to Coindesk's daily opinions section. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And now here he is, Ben Schiller. Welcome to Opinionated. Today we're going to be speaking to two Coindesk columnists from London. Uh, first, we have Lex Sokolin, who is Consensus's global fintech head and all-round fintech guru. He'll be discussing a recent piece in Coindesk entitled How DeFi Can Avoid the Irrelevance of P2P Lending and Crowdfunding. This is where Lex looks at other forms of collaborative finance like equity crowdfunding and why they have not worked out as expected and what the lessons might be for decentralized finance as it looks to grow beyond its small but relatively niche audience. Secondly, we have Francis Coppola, who is a veteran, independent economics and finance writer, and she'll be discussing a recent piece titled Banks Are Toast, But Crypto Has Lost Its Soul. And that is an interesting piece where she uh, talks about the long history of the 2008 financial crisis, the impact on the banking industry, and the rise of crypto. And it's fair to say that Coppola is not a huge uh, fan of the cryptocurrency industry but she's definitely a strong voice and definitely worth listening to. So uh, let's dive in uh, with Lex. Lex, you wanted to start us off and talk about the premise of the piece. I mean, how did you come to write it? So I'm a huge enthusiast for DeFi. I think it's fantastic. It's the most interesting thing that's happening to financial services, in my view, and repackaging how financial instruments are made and what financial rails are and what standards are. And so I think it's it's just this really precious thing, despite some of the weird DeFi things going on. I think underneath it is this really special innovation. But it's always helpful to be grounded, especially in crypto land, where people often generate these logic trees of how the world should be if this happens and if this happens and sort of uh, create a bubble of thinking. And one way to get through that bubble and cut through the imaginary land in which we live is to anchor to comparisons. You know, all this stuff, it's not new. People have been paying and saving and lending and trading for thousands of years. There are different technologies on which you do it, but these are really kind of pedestrian human behaviors. And so it's not hard to find a comparison, and we can even find a comparison in the last two decades. And in particular, we can look at trends that had similar narratives, similar underlying stories about what was going on. And so in the piece, I thought about three of those. I thought about peer-to-peer -peer file sharing. So what came out of Napster into Kazaa into BitTorrent and this concept of 
the community spreading media files and sharing with each other. And what's really happened to that? You know, the, the, the actual story of file sharing is Spotify, is that the percent of DRM-protected media consumption is higher now than it was something like 10 years ago because of Spotify and, and these other monopolies. And then the other two bits that I looked at were, number one, peer-to-peer lending. So companies like Lending Club or Funding Circle or if we must look at things like OnDeck, where the core premise was, why do we need banks where we can just create a community where people provide capital and other people borrow that capital and they pay off the credit cards and everyone's going to be better off. And the key news item for catalyzing this thinking was, hey, actually, Lending Club just shut down its P2P platform like two weeks ago. They turned it off and said, we don't want to do this anymore. So the original creator of P2P lending gave up on it two weeks ago. And then finally is the concept of crowdfunding. So equity crowdfunding in the early 2010s was this hot fintech theme of finally retail investors will own lots of early stage projects and They'll exit when those companies succeed and go public, and it'll break venture capital forever, and it's fantastic. And again, we got some information about how the top crowdfunding sites in the UK are doing. And the top two, which is Crowdcube and Cedars, are merging because there's not enough of a market, and their economics are that they make about $5 million in revenue and burn another $5 million in cost. Taking these three things together is a sobering look at how far sort of like this P2P dynamic takes you. And being somebody who really wants DeFi to work, I tried to pull apart, you know, what are the lessons and what are the dangers of only relying on this narrative that there's something inevitable about communities and P2P and to try to think critically about like what's missing? Why did these things fall apart? You have this quote in the middle that I think is really the money quote, where you say that this is a warning to decentralized protocols that think that redefining technology redefines market structure, human nature, and microeconomic behavior. Does this kind of get at this fallacy that people have that technology necessarily has certain consequences that it inevitably produces these impacts when it has to actually rush up against the real world problem? So the assumption that a regular person is going to be interested in making financial instruments, like going to Lending Club and rifling through a whole bunch of nodes of individual consumer credit in order to underwrite some particular one to get alpha of 2% in interest, or that somebody is going to be interested in going to a crowdfunding site in order to find the best neobank for some population that wants to raise 50K or 300K or whatever. These behaviors are not generalizable. Normal people are not in a place where they're excited to make financial products. And to me, that's, you know, that's always the thing to overcome is the allergy and the negative emotion that people have when it comes to interacting with finance. Go get a mortgage, go get a student loan, figure out your asset allocation and your retirement. Like these are all negative experiences. So it's not a surprise for me that some of these P2P finance companies blew up. 
in the US, there was a whole set of fintech companies that the crypto ecosystem knows, but companies like Kaching, which became Wealthfront, or Covestor, which got acquired by interactive brokers, that started the social trading phenomenon. Um, some of them started as like apps on Facebook, where the premise is you go and you select an amateur investor and you copy their trades and they execute. And lots of venture has gone into this theme and copy trading has never really taken off. It just doesn't work. There's not enough people who are self-directed enough to want to be engaged in the financial instrument, but want to delegate insofar as to give somebody else the investment discretion. And I just think it's a really small niche market. And so crypto and DeFi in some way has been this puzzle to me. And it's what gets me addicted to the ecosystem. And the puzzle is, what about it congeals such a large community of people to want to play these financial games together? What about it is different from P2P lending or crowdfunding or stock social trading? And the initial intuitions that I have are all about the size, so the global nature. Equity crowdfunding in the UK is for a 100 million person market, whereas crypto is global. It's the full 6 billion people. And then on top of that, it's the internet-y gamer culture that is endemic to crypto and that it comes out naturally from communities rather than coming from a company that's trying to achieve a particular business objective. So I want to create a platform where people perform some sort of financial financial activity, but rather this grows out naturally from the communities and communities get paid to perpetuate the cycle. And not necessarily in sort of like even a financial sense, but in terms of in a reputational sense. You know, so if you think about just like the privilege or the respect or social currency that people accrue from being influential in DeFi or in the crypto markets, that's a huge motivator that's non-monetary, but I don't think exists if you are trying to pick lending club notes or invest in the next Monzo. And so I think there are other levers that exist inside of DeFi that are ways out of this conundrum of like this human personality problem, this lack of a sufficiently large audience because the behavior is kind of foreign. But at the same time, we can't ignore some of the, you know, the carcasses and the skeletons along the road. Um, I think we have to, to respect those data points and try to understand them. Interesting. So uh, you have one quote at the end here I thought was particularly good. Crowdfunding works not when there is access, but when there is something to achieve by participation. So presumably that's another reason why you would think DeFi might work better than some of these other businesses. Basically, there's more upside to being involved. Yeah, it again comes down, I think, to the humans being social animals and sort of the inherent hierarchies that we care about. You know, we care about status and then the quality of the things that are inside of the clubs, right? So to be a partner in, ooh, I was going to say Goldman Sachs, but I don't think it's speaking to this audience, you know, to have access to really high quality investment opportunities, right? So to be able to invest in Bitcoin in the beginning or Twitter in the beginning or Square in the beginning or and Financial in the very beginning and have access to that privileged access, early information to do so, versus, oh, here's a website with a bunch of stuff on it, 
right? Which is somewhat equivalent to what happened with the ICO boom, where we went from being early to Bitcoin and then being early to Ethereum was really meaningful. And there's an OG cred associated with it. And by investing in these assets, there was something that you spotted, you know? And so getting over the technical hurdle to own these assets was meaningful. Whereas, you know, by 2018, where all it takes is for you to go on a website with a planet and some hexagons on it, there's no privilege. There's nothing you're discovering. You're just at the tail end of a boom cycle. This is also the lemons problem. The lemons problem in the sense that if you're a company and you're trying to do equity crowdfunding, then you've probably failed out of getting a VC check from Andreessen. And that means the opportunities available to you as like a P2P financier are worse than the opportunities available to you in the traditional economy. And I think DeFi has been so far able to get around that because the stuff inside the DeFi box is still super cool and interesting and compelling and fundamentally innovative in a way that captivates people. So one of the things you say here about getting beyond the kind of P2P problem is uh, you talk about creating feedback loops between the kind of market venues like Uniswap and create incentive structures around companies and individuals to choose open source standards over closed door systems. Uh, can you just expand on what you meant by uh, feedback loops in that scenario? It's um, somewhat cliche to talk about these sort of communities that accelerate the discovery of market needs and then translate that into software. It's a cliche, but it's also true. You know, so if you look outside of crypto, and you look at movements, like you could look at art movements, you could look at cubism in the beginning of the 20th century, or you can look at, you know, Pollock and abstract expressionism. Or if you look at poetry and literary themes, what you'll see is that there's very often a group of people that are in physical proximity. They might go to the same cafe, right? And they hang out and they create a manifesto for an art genre and then push each other very quickly to discover kind of like in this fractal way what this genre is about. Like uh, the hugely productive couple of years because the whole field of opportunities open. And you have this close-knit community of five, 10 people who, who are on this journey and who are generating this work. And because they're together, they can iterate really, really quick in a new environment. And I think when you look at the crypto ecosystem, it's like that, but on steroids, because it's not a cafe of five to 10 people drawing Cubist paintings. It's software developers in a global environment riffing on each other's code in a completely open and scaled way. And you know, if you look at Andre's writings, the founder of Yearn, and the positioning that he takes around, this is to build things. This is a developer initiative. This is not a financial get-rich-quick you know, capital initiative. And if you take that seriously, then you can start seeing the connection between sort of like these individual creators that are all aligned on exploring the space as quickly as possible. The second innovation outside of just being open source and having this like ethos of building a movement together iteratively to discover its limits, which honestly no company can do, 
is the fact that you build monetary incentives into the very core of it. And I think that innovation comes in and out of favor. It's sort of in favor now. It was called tokenomics during ICO time, and it's fallen out of favor at some other points. But that innovation of kind of microeconomic incentivization to pull people in the right direction, or not in the right direction, but in the direction that the software wants you to go, is unbelievably powerful and is both powerful and also terrifying and dangerous. You can deduce that from even on Instagram, right, or on Facebook, where the only built-in incentive is a like. Like the only thing you get there in terms of microeconomic encouragement is a social cue of approval. Even that has broken everybody's mind and sort of like driven them into dust and apocalypse, right, where we are today. And so if it's enough to just put a like button to destroy civilization, what happens when you inject capital markets that are able to literally generate livelihoods for people into a software that is global and can subsume markets and financial activity? I guess you started asking me, how can we make sure this stays alive? I think if played right, not only will it stay alive, but it potentially has these outsized impacts of what we make large populations do. So if you had to summarize, uh, it sounds like you're saying that uh, you know there are these sort of pitfalls, but DeFi does have some advantages that allows it to move on from the fate of P2P lending. So I mean, broadly, are you optimistic about the next few years and DeFi growing into more of a mainstream business? I am very optimistic because I think DeFi is displaying the evidence of traction. We're seeing somewhere between 500,000 to a million people using DeFi protocols. On MetaMask now, I think we crossed a million monthly average users, and largely they're interacting with decentralized apps, most of which are DeFi. And so I think there's a magic in DeFi that was not in P2P lending and crowdfunding. And I think that magic comes from the sort of global footprint, from tokenized incentives, from real innovation inside of the financial instruments. And I think where it can break is assuming that it's enough to just talk about the financial instrument rather than talking about how is this going to help normal people improve their life and how can they participate in it without having to understand everything. And so I'm optimistic, but I'd love for folks to be kind of grounded in the experience of these other adjacent industries. Well, thanks very much for coming on, Lex. It was excellent. And you can check out Lex's work at coindesk.com as well as through his own newsletter, The Fintech Blueprint. We're now going to be joined by Francis Coppola, another Coindesk columnist from the United Kingdom, uh, which is the best place to hail from, I think, uh, Royal Britannia. Today, we're going to discuss a recent column uh, from Francis entitled, Banks are Toast, but Crypto has lost its soul. And we'll publish the link on the show page so you can see it. So, uh, Francis, uh, at the beginning, you say at the beginning that the 2008 financial crisis created an extraordinary financial melting pot. Could you just talk about what you meant by the melting pot and it being extraordinary? Well, I think that we, all sorts of things in which we had previously kind of trusted, turned out to be not trusted. So, banks, for example, that had been trusted for centuries, probably, practically blew the economy up, turned out to be incredibly corrupt and put people's money at risk. 
but also other things like the payment system nearly blew up as well. And it just really destroyed trust in the whole financial system, really, and created kind of a fertile ground in which kind of new things could grow and maybe the old disappear. And I think that's what lots of us were expecting after that would be that this incredible destruction of the fabric of the financial system, really, everything that we'd relied on, could create that opportunity. And yet, 10 years later, that doesn't quite seem to have happened. So, I mean, how far do you think we've moved on from, uh, you know, the financial crisis? And how much do you think we still have those dysfunctional elements still in place? Well, We've put all sorts of controls in place, particularly around existing banks and also some things that weren't banks at the time of the financial crisis, but um, decided it was in in their interests to become banks, such as Goldman Sachs. We tied them down with lots of regulation. We attempted to control the corruption that was endemic in the system by introducing know your customer and anti-money laundering rules. We imposed capital and liquidity requirements. We limited the kinds of transactions they could do, all sorts of things, all of which were supposed to make the financial system safer for the, for its users and also to reinstate trust in it. I think it was hugely important. And I don't think that's entirely worked. I mean, and the other side of this was at the same time, we would, the uh, central banks, you could say this is the golden age of central banks. They're doing more now than they've ever done. Right. Um, and all of that depends on trust as well. So there is this kind of assumption that central banks can always completely be trusted and everything they do is for the good of the economy and the wider population. And is that really the case? There is evidence that some of the things they do don't benefit ordinary people and do have perverse and weird effects on the economy. So, again, there is a doubt in lots of people's minds. Some people trust them less than others. I mean, there has right from the start of the financial crisis, really, or the interventions after the financial crisis, been this belief among some people that, Everything that the Fed does is going to cause hyperinflation eventually. Now, in 10 years on, we still haven't got hyperinflation. And yet we see there's a post on Seeking Alpha only a couple of days ago saying hyperinflation is here. And when I say, well, where is your hyperinflation? The CPI, the Consumer Price Index is on the floor. They say, just look at asset prices. And yeah, there's arguably hyperinflation in asset prices. So then you get into the, well, what exactly do you mean? I guess if somebody wants to not trust the financial system, they will not trust the financial system. But I have to say that there are that what central banks and banks do to engender trust doesn't always work. So I suppose you're saying that uh, central banks have effectively uh, propped up banks' role in the financial system. I mean, um, why do you think we have not seen uh, more change in the last 10 years? I mean, is it because uh, central banks have been playing this kind of backstop role? Yeah, I think it is. And I think also because um, there was a very good deflection act as well done by central banks in cahoots with fiscal authorities, which used to distract attention away from the mess that the banks had made of the world to fiscal authorities, to governments. And they were helped along in this by the Eurozone crisis, which of course was all about, well, originally Greece and then other countries as well getting into a huge mess with their sovereign finances. And so they could convince the world that actually the real problem 
was governments spending too much and borrowing too much and getting themselves in a horrible mess, not banks spending too much and borrowing too much and being fundamentally corrupt and nearly blowing up the world, which is what actually happened. So I, I think there was quite a bit of that going on as well. If we can distract attention from what really went on, we can avoid having to change anything. So meanwhile, uh, banks are not sort of offering very good returns on the money that they have. And that may be one of the reasons you argue why people have been so keen to get into more speculative assets such as uh, cryptocurrencies and particularly recently uh, the big growth in stable coins and in DeFi finance, which offers crazy, ridiculous returns sometimes. So you see a connection between this kind of low rate, low return environment in the traditional financial system and this kind of high rate, high risk situation in this emerging financial system? Yeah, absolutely, I do. Um, and reach for yield has been a problem really ever since the financial crisis where you can't get any kind of decent return on your savings. So you have to move into higher risk things. You know, so you might put your money into some of the alternate finance providers, online banks or something, but even they are only often kind of tiny interest rates now. So where do you go? And that's kind of been the case ever since the financial crisis. We've had bubbles in all sorts of things. We had a spike in oil prices driven up by QE. We had uh, bubbles in emerging market debt. We've had the collapse of the yields of junk bonds. And now we have the extraordinary rise in the uh, prices of cryptocurrency assets, both the sort of relatively established ones like Bitcoin, but also some of the things that really, I suppose you could describe as the Wild West, completely untried and quite a lot of them probably scams. But everything rises because you have got a lot of people trying desperately to find some return in a world where there just isn't any. So we've seen a lot of uh, respectable publicly traded companies investing uh, bigly in Bitcoin recently, uh, Square and others. Presumably, in, in your sort of theory of things, you don't see that as a sort of positive development for the core kind of investment case of Bitcoin, which is as a hedge against inflation. I'm, I don't really see Bitcoin as a hedge, hedge against inflation at all. Um, its price is way too volatile. I mean, if you want to hedge against inflation, you use something that's going to be stable, don't you? Bitcoin is anything but stable. So I'm a little puzzled by this belief that it's, that it's a hedge against inflation. I am not seeing it. I'm seeing an extremely volatile asset, which is prone to bubbles and busts and is up and down like a roller coaster. It seems to me that it's a speculative asset, not an inflation hedge. You you invest in Bitcoin because you expect to make money out of it, not because you're trying to protect against losses from something else. That's not exactly what those CEOs of those big firms were saying. When they're not saying they're speculating, they're, they're they're saying that they're doing this for the so they can maintain the value of their assets. Um, people will say all sorts of things, and I'm you know I I don't have to agree with them, <laughs> but that would be my view. Is I don't see this as a hedge against inflation. I see it as a speculative asset. I I was looking at a company today that was putting some of its cash reserves into Bitcoin. And when I actually looked at the company, I saw that it was making losses hand over fists and had negative equity. And I thought, you know, this isn't isn't an inflation hedge at all. What this is is an attempt to make some money because they're not making any, are they? Hmm. I'm not saying who it is, but yeah, you actually sometimes have to look at the financials. Interesting. So uh, let's just get back to the wheeling a bit off the point. But um, in the piece, you kind of make this pivot from uh, first discussing the financial system and then uh, the, the shift into more speculative assets, as you put it. And then you talk about the 
surge in stable coins, which are mostly denominated in dollars. And you say it's sort of ironic that people who started out believing in an alternative financial system or alternative money system are now investing heavily in the existing fiat money system. Why do you see that as a kind of selling out? I guess because when Bitcoin was originally created, its early adopters, its early believers, believed it would replace the dollar. It would replace fiat currencies. It would become the universal currency system for payments, for transactions. And we seem to be moving further and further away from that. Now, instead of looking to replace the dollar, they're looking to tie Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies, so Ethereum as well and others, to the dollar. Everything's valued in dollars. The returns are in dollars. They even measure the market cap in dollars or in euros sometimes. But what they're not doing is breaking that link with fiat currencies. The whole thing now is kind of tied to fiat currencies with ropes of steel. And that's what stable coins do is, um, to coin a phrase, tether cryptocurrencies to the fiat currency system. And the more the cryptocurrency system relies on stable coins like Tether, the more closely tied it is to the fiat currency system. So most people would probably agree that uh, stable coins are not what Satoshi intended, but isn't the stable coin surge reflective of a technology uh, being kind of taken up by the mainstream? I mean, it's not exactly Bitcoin, but it is value transfer over a blockchain. It's something similar. So uh, shouldn't we be happy with that? Not really, because um, you know we've seen this all before. Creating what I would call sort of fake dollars, things that you call dollars but aren't dollars, don't have any backing from the Fed, which you say are backed by one-to-one by real dollar reserves, but you can't actually produce any evidence that you've got them. And actually, when you're asked in court, you have to admit you've only got 74%. This game has been played since time immemorial of creating fake things to represent real things. I, I don't see anything new about this. And the fact that you put it on a blockchain makes no difference. Really, I, I don't see this as new in any way. Bitcoin was, was innovative. Stable coins are not. Wall Street's full of uh, synthetic assets that are not uh, sort of real in that sense. I mean, would you say all of those things are the same as stable coins? Yeah, absolutely. We even have the equivalent of the now in cryptocurrencies of the toxic derivatives that blew up the world in 2008. How is that progress? You'd think, wouldn't you, that the cryptocurrency world would be moving us on, moving us away from this kind of stuff. If all it does is replicate what we've got already, how is that an improvement? I I don't get it. If the cryptocurrency industry was to get back its soul, uh, I mean, how do you think it could do that? I mean, would it be uh, wholesale adoption of Bitcoin or, or something else, do you think? Well, I think that we have to sort of go back to do we intend Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrencies to be currencies and to remind ourselves what the primary purpose of a currency is? Because I think where it's lost its soul is in this idea that it's basically an asset that you hold on to and you expect to make money from holding it. Because that's not fundamentally what a currency is. What a currency is is a means of making transactions, means of buying goods and services. The, the money that you use to buy your weekly shopping, to pay your rent, to buy a coffee, that that's what you use a currency for. And currencies aren't good assets held for the long term. 
in a way, because their primary purpose is to be very liquid and very movable and even the quantity to move with the economy and things like that. So myself, I think we should try and remember that if you want something to be a currency, it's got to be universally usable. It's got to be something that actually doesn't have wild swings in value, because if it does, then it's not very usable as a medium of exchange and something that doesn't appreciate hugely over time, because that's not very usable as a medium of exchange either, because the incentive is for people to hold it instead of using it. I think that's, you know, the the whole kind of incentive structure of Bitcoin at the moment is around hanging on to it and making money from wild swings in its value speculation. And that's kind of fundamentally at odds with what a currency should be. So what it should be looking for is low stable rates of increase, but above all stability in exchange rates and in a way a disincentive to hold for long periods of time so that it doesn't increase in price hugely over time. And that's really where they need to be getting back to. Interesting. So just a couple more questions. Uh, I mean, just going back to the kind of macroeconomic questions for a while. uh, What is your view, uh, for instance, of Jerome Powell's recent statement about inflation policy? And how do you see the election now uh, playing out in the markets? Well, this is interesting because central banks, I mean, the Fed has now, I think, acknowledged that it is the world's central bank, not just America's central bank. And that's a change actually this year. I mean, that was the change. What happened in, in March was the Fed <laughs> had to be dragged kicking and screaming into actually propping up world markets. And it seems to have accepted that role now. And because of that, I think the Fed's lead on inflation policy is going to be echoed by other central banks, and particularly by the ECB. Central banks haven't hit their inflation targets for a decade. None of them. And so what they're doing is basically saying, well, it could be that because we are signaling that as soon as we get anywhere near our inflation targets, we will squash down on the economy so to dampen it so that inflation doesn't take off. We're actually preventing ourselves reaching our inflation targets. So now what they're saying is, well, if inflation has been below target for a while, we will allow it to run above target for a while so we can catch up. Will this make any difference to where we are right now? Well, if it means that they run loose policy for a little bit longer to allow um, the economy to grow a bit more strongly, we might escape a deflationary slump. So that could be quite a good thing. But so much depends on confidence. And, you know, if you look at the experience of Japan, where inflation has been on the floor for the last 25 years, despite the best efforts of the Bank of Japan to talk it up, the Bank of Japan raised its inflation targets at 2% and everybody laughed. (laughs) it it wasn't remotely credible. So there's a huge issue of confidence and credibility. And I think now we're beginning to question whether central banks really can raise inflation when all the market forces are deflationary. Right. Uh, One last question. So um, you talk about banks being toast. Uh, I was just wondering if you really mean that literally. Uh, I mean, do you think in 10 years time, if we can use a crystal ball, uh, you think we'll really be using other institutions than Wells Fargo and Barclays, I mean, are they really going to be out of business? I think we'll still have things called Wells Fargo and Barclays. Um, It's a bit like IBM, isn't it? (laughs) You know, we've still got IBM, but what IBM does now is very different from what it was doing in the 1960s. So I, I wouldn't be hung up on the name. I would be looking at what they're doing. And I think that the nature of the business is changing so fundamentally 
that what we think of as as big banks, what they do, will be very different in the future. So when I say that banks are toast, that's what I mean. We think of banks traditionally as being lending institutions. Uh, They're doing credit intermediation, so taking deposits and making loans, and maturity transformation, which means they borrow short and lend long. Because of the whole way in which interest rates are moving, flattening of yield curves, the maturity transformation element of their job is becoming increasingly difficult. And also, there's a lot of disintermediation going on. So, you know, when people want to borrow, do they necessarily go to a bank? They don't have to. There's a lot of a lot of lenders out there that aren't banks. And similarly, when they want to place a deposit, do they have to place it in the bank? No, they don't. So, in a way, the whole core business of banks, you could say, is being whittled away. And I think we may be seeing they're increasingly moving into asset management and competing with pension funds and things like that. So I think we're seeing a a sea change in what these big institutions called Wells Fargo and Barclays actually do, which kind of changes what they are, just if that makes sense. Makes total sense. And I think we're going to continue to see this extraordinary uh, melting pot. Thanks very much for your time and thanks very much for continuing to write such insightful pieces for the site and uh, we look forward to seeing your next piece soon. Thanks very much. Pleasure. Thanks everybody for listening and we look forward to welcoming you again to the Opinionated Podcast. I'm Ben Schiller, the Features Editor at Coindesk and you can check out all the work at coindesk.com. And please, if you have an opinion about crypto and the world out there, please get in touch. My email address is ben at coindesk.com. See you.